Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, it's a very nice but crisp day out there. I'm not sure if uh, I wasn't here, I wouldn't be under my doona keeping warm. But anyway, by the by, I'm here and I have hopefully there's people out there listening as well. If you can't listen early in the morning on a Saturday, then there's always the podcast. Today, we've got a variety of stuff to look at. Uh, we're going to later on, we're going to be talking to somebody from the group of people who stood out in the streets this week, uh, those pesky students from the NUS and Wacker and people like that who uh, raised the flag against uh, the border force who are involved in uh, uh, hurting refugees effectively and uh, militarism, which is uh, raise, rising its uh, ugly head on our uh institutions that are paid for by the public, as well as the destruction of the environment. We're going to talk to somebody about this later on, particularly about militarism and its uh, creeping effects on uh, our university world. But of course, this is uh, something that's uh, going on all around as there is this increasing international uh, oppression of basically the working class as well as all and sundry under a particular economic regime. Uh, it, it's quite interesting. Uh, we're right in the middle of one of those uh, kind of uh, propaganda campaigns right at this moment with the ACCC deciding that all of a sudden uh, they're going to investigate the energy industry and its outrageous uh, bills that everybody is being crippled under for uh, electricity, They're, the gas, of course, is uh, doubled and, of course, then there's the water, uh, but the electricity in particular. And it's quite interesting because, you know, they've come up with uh, gold. They've discovered that uh, there is this inappropriate level of um, uh, pretend amounts of money going into the uh, lines and poles. But, of course, they're steering away from the uh, obvious reason for why this is all happening, in which is, of course, government policy, which allowed the privatisation of our utilities. Now, uh, they don't want to talk about that. They only want to talk about uh, all these other things. Why are they talking about it at the moment? It's, they're talking about it at the moment because... The uh, federal government, the LNP federal government and uh, whoever it is that they're working for, uh, are, their policy is to invest in coal power, 
uh, generated uh, electricity uh, plants and they also want to enforce uh, fracking right across Australia. And I know this is the case because I went to a uh, conference uh, before this campaign was afoot where Frydenberg, who uh, had... uh, who's supposedly in charge of the Ministry of whatever they call it, used to be called the Environment, but uh, the Environment was almost been left off that particular portfolio. And he said quite categorically that their principal plan was to invest in coal and uh, to bring down prices, and which was the only focus, and that uh, fracking, they would enforce a whole range of methods. They'd be working on the principle of getting the states to relinquish the legislative power that they have uh, that prevents uh, fracking from coming. Like in Victoria, that we banned fracking, right, which was a big victory. But ultimately, each state has control over that particular... uh, form of legislation. Now, this government, federal government, wants to work towards making it a federal legislative uh, uh, area so that no states can actually have the power to actually uh, ban fracking. And Because for some reason or other, this LMP government's decided that uh, they're going to swing the entire population of Australia over to their side because the electricity bills are so crippling that we're prepared to sacrifice the entire Australian environment for the benefit of big business, effectively. Now, I know that this is actually possible because uh, a while ago, two decades ago, when I was living in the bush, I actually uh, was there when a a small community that made its living by uh, milling, uh, chopping down trees, were told that uh, uh, they only had 20 more years of trees to go and then the place would be completely denuded. Uh, They were offered, it was a community vote, you could vote to either continue with the milling or uh, work for uh, uh, in a different way and uh, go with the government's uh, offer for some uh, retrenchment money and some uh, retraining. Though that community, majority of them, voted to continue to mill the forests, right? Now, because they were looking at their needs right at that moment. And, you know, you can see the uh, where it's coming from. And this is what this government at the moment is trying to enforce upon the Australian community uh, this destruction of our environment effectively for the benefit of big business and they're using the ACCC as the beginning of this campaign because it hasn't been uh, they haven't been able to use other methods yet to sway people uh, to actually sacrifice the entire aquifer and uh, fragile environment because Australia of course is a very old place right it's a very old place, but you know they had victories. The big, the big ends of town, and the government had their victories when they uh, did the uh, uh, took land from Aboriginal people for uh, mining, uh, using a whole lot of uh, methods like uh, the um, intervention, because of course those people 
couldn't uh, look after their own affairs and uh, using uh, uh, withholding pensions, uh, a whole range of other methodologies to undermine the Aboriginal communities. Now, the reason for why I'm bringing this up is one to point out that we're watching slow motion the various campaign methods that the government is using to change the conversation about the destruction of the environment uh, because of our bills being too high and avoiding the issue of privatisation, which has got us to this point, which is their fault. It's their fault. Anyway... I went off and had a yarn with Geoffrey Mosey from uh, the National Union of Workers. Uh, it was about something else completely different, but it was on. The, he was on the in the point on the point of doing something, and the NUW was in is involved in this uh, uh, project, which uh, is about uh, moving towards wresting uh, p- uh, power from. Uh, big business, uh, taking the power out of the hands of big business, which I found thoroughly uh, fascinating. And so I brought it to the table here so that people could realise that actually there's a potentially another future. So here we go. Have a, have a listen. So uh, the National Union of Workers, we've been part of setting up uh, an energy cooperative uh, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll be offering uh, electricity to our members in Queensland on a not-for-profit basis. So this energy cooperative is a cooperative of unions, other cooperatives, community groups and NGOs uh, as a way to radically uh, transform our energy system and bring about a state of energy democracy. So taking electricity out of corporate control and corporate hands. Uh, and we're going to start with a very simple model uh, and then aim to reinvest that model back into working class and transition communities uh, so that we can have uh, take the power back, essentially. Uh, How will it work? Uh, so there's going to be cooperatives generating the power? or Yeah, so it's, it's going to work with the smallest intervention that we can make within the market and the system for energy provision as it exists today. Uh, but like a, a motor, um, we hope that over time it will take us on a journey through to full energy democracy. So where we're going to start is a very simple basis. Um, we've got a bunch of different union branches and community groups together that uh, at present time represent a collection of 80,000 uh, workers and community members around the country. So it'll be a national project. And we will start by a retail product partnership. So we've essentially found the social enterprise retailer who uh, has a system that we understand about how they support their ongoing operation that we don't think is extractive uh, or taking too much profit out of the system. They will provide uh, electricity on the lowest rate that they can provide on a set and forget basis. So none of this nonsense about massive discounts for people if they switch all the time just uh, and they'll be able to provide green power options what we're then going to do with that is we think in victoria our members will be able to save anywhere between three to seven hundred dollars a year and some of that money most of that money that three to seven hundred will go back to um, the pockets of of working class people and we'll save some of that money collectively and democratically governed within the cooperative uh, and use those funds to 
reinvest into ways that help people to use less electricity uh, or transition to renewable electricity. So the three aims of the cooperative in our rules that we've set up, there are three different problems that we've said we need to address and we need to address together. Number one, we need to ensure that uh, we don't have dangerous climate change. So we aim to do what we can do to prevent um, global temperatures going up above 1.5 degrees Celsius. Number two, we recognise that we're in the middle of a democratic crisis um, and the, the decline in trade union membership in Australia needs to be located as part of a broader decline in democratic participation as the market further atomises people and we need to fix that. And number three, we know that we're in the middle of a living standards crisis uh, for working class people in Australia struggling to get by with insecure and precarious work. The theory of the cooperative is that the solution to any one of those problems uh, is not a true solution unless it deals with all three of those problems at once. So to access the services of the cooperative, a worker, a person has to be a member of one of the members of the cooperative. So we want to have something in there that not on its own, because it's just one thing, but for community groups who want to get started and get organising, it's a service that they could provide to their members that justify them um, paying a, a small amount of membership dues towards that organisation every year, whether it's 50 or or $100. So the membership group are going to be the NUW, the uh, Earthworker... Uh, yeah, ASU Services and Authorities Branch in Victoria and Tasmania, uh, NTU Victorian Division, uh, Energy Innovation Cooperative, Union Aid Abroad, uh, AFIDA. So it's it's a good group of people to get started, but ultimately we want to see it become a thing that um, every union offers to their members and becomes uh, a great tool for small community groups who want to get together and form relationships and build communities. Over the next few weeks, you're offering it to Queensland members. Yeah, so Queensland NUW members, we're, we're going to roll it out. So just to, I, I believe in the scientific method. So we're going to roll it out and trial it and see what goes wrong and what goes right uh, and see what we can do better and then roll it out to people um, in other parts of the country. And we think we can do some really interesting and innovative stuff with this. Like we eventually, when this gets up and running and we're 100,000, 200,000, half a million people, the volume of who we are on the market can radically change the terms and operation of the market. But we also think that we'll be in a position to uh, democratically manage a sum of 50 to $60 million per annum that we can invest into ensuring um, renters can get solar panels and batteries to ensuring people in apartments can share in those benefits to uh, helping to educate working class people about how to use less power uh, to providing support for people organising in their various communities and regional towns to build community energy projects to funding campaigns for energy democracy uh, and funding campaigns for proactive and progressive um, energy policies and community supports in places like the Latrobe and Hunter Valley. So we think that this can be a small thing in of itself, even if it gets really big, only a handful of people might end up working for it. But we, the way that I look at it is like a keystone in a bridge between two worlds where 
it, it, it helps us get from where we are today to where we need to be tomorrow. Uh, and it provides a support for a whole bunch of other um, cooperatives to get started. And different economic models. Yes, different economic models and, and business units where workers actually have control because once we're of sufficient critical mass, we can do some interesting things. We can say to the world at large, look, we want to find people who can help educate our workers uh, about how to um, use less energy or read their bills or provide them concrete advice about what changes can be made in where they live to make them more energy independent or energy efficient. Um, we, will, we can subsidise or, or provide X number of um, uh, hours or dollars worth of advice each year. Mm. Uh, and then that could potentially make that sort of cooperative of professionals a viable thing, not on its own, but as a keystone contract for them to then go out and do other work. And you can replicate that out into trades, manufacturing places, like Earthworker, for instance. We can say, okay, we as a cooperative want to buy or subsidise X number of solar hot water units per year and help working class people who couldn't otherwise afford that be able to install that in the home. All right, Earthworker, let's sit down with you and work through um, what might be able to produce out of your factory in Morwell. Um, well, we'll get back to you and find out how the experiment works. Okay, great. Well, the first thing, Annie, is we just want to make sure the world doesn't end if a few hundred <laughs> members... Um, yeah take up the retailing service in Queensland. Vote for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and... Uh Yes, we're, we've almost made a target, but we haven't quite made a target. And uh, in fact, it's really interesting because uh, Solidarity Breakfast and the total for 3CR, we seem to be running parallel. We're almost over the line. 3CR's almost over the line. Uh, if you've got any spare change, we'd love it and we'd love you to dedicate it to, to Solidarity Breakfast. I have to make $350 more in order to make, to, uh, what is that, justify my existence. So if you've got any any uh, spare cash, throw it our way. Uh, in the uh, studio, we've got Jeremy Poxham from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. And g'day, Jeremy. Good morning, Annie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, very big things have been happening uh, for uh, people in the unemployed uh, worker sphere. And the most important issue has been this change on July the 1st to a demerit points system for... Uh, uh, which can cause people to basically be uh, have no no funds at all. Can you explain to listeners how this works? Yeah, so um, the new demerit point system essentially continues um, this government, both sides of of, of governments, um, real punitive sort of compliance regime when it comes to uh, job seekers and, and people trying to survive uh, on new start. So essentially, what it is um, is it is it gives. Uh, job agencies, um, unprecedented new powers um, to punish 
uh, and sanction the pay, um, cancel the pay for job seekers. So in the nuts and bolts uh, of it, you can rack up eight points. Um, the first four. And so, uh, so for all those people out there who can't drive a car. Now they get to have the same system applied to them for <laughs> being bad on the roads. That's a, Except it's exactly, this is being exactly bad in right, life. Because uh, apparently, you know, missing missing an appointment with your job agent is as dangerous as, as running a red light, apparently. <laughs> um, so, um, so there's eight points that you can amass. Um, the first four of these points, um, these punishment points that job agencies can dole out, they don't need any Centrelink oversight to be able to decide uh, when to punish unemployed workers. And this is the real, kind of the new thing, the new horrible thing um, about this reform, uh, because before July 1st, uh, Centrelink had the right to overrule uh, any punishments now, uh, that now job we, agencies would deal out. Yeah. And they often did because Centrelink used to have this um, system where if they thought that a punishment would cause, quote, undue financial stress on the job seeker, they'd overturn it. Now, under the new demerit point system, uh, agencies basically have free reign um, for those first four points which can result in suspension of pay. And job seekers really have no ability to contest those decisions. They basically just have to lump payment until you get to your fifth demerit point, fifth to eight demerit point, and that's when the punishments become really serious. That's when you you can start making appeals on decisions because that's when uh, your pay can get cut 50%. Um, it can get cut 100% if you're at the you know seven to eight. And for a certain point. amount of time. Absolutely. They so, use time and amount. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, it's a real um, sort of a scary proposition and the AEW is starting to get calls from people through our hotline who are being punished by this system. Um, what's really troubling... Uh, for us is that first four demerit points that can't even be uh, contested or appealed. Unemployed workers just have to lump suspensions of their pay. Now, uh, now this is, uh, for people, t- uh, should take into account uh, that this is exactly the same kind of arrangement that uh, governments do when they're in the throes of neoliberalism. They uh, outsource privatised prisons, so therefore you've got to have more prisoners uh, for longer sentences. Uh, the same kind of language is now being used. They're divesting their responsibility for the punishments or their, 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 uh, uh, for unemployed people, they're saying that they no longer have to, they've got a middle person. They no longer are the ones that are accountable for what's going on to people who are unemployed. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's all sort of, and all that's kind of guided by, um, you know, this idea of, of efficiency. I'm sure just, you know, the amount of, um, decisions that Centrelink have to overturn. Um, from from job agencies. We got some data recently from the National Social Security Rights Network that said that Centrelink, before July 1st, were overturning 50% um, of these decisions, which give you, gives you a fair idea of why we shouldn't let uh, job agencies have a well, free well, reign. But obviously, yeah. that's, a, that's a lot of bureaucracy yeah. for the government to do. They don't want to do that, so they're giving job, job but, agencies you know, more the, free the, reign. The first, issue, the first issue is that the government is not... Uh, ethically is not performing in an ethical manner. 
and it's giving away powers to a private company, a private for profit company in yep. some cases, to make decisions about people, citizens' lives. Now, the next thing, of course, is that the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, you've been working very hard over time to collect information and you speak to a lot of people because you're a mm-hmm. national organisation who have found that. One, a lot of the people who are working in these private organisations are untrained. They don't have the level of training that the Centrelink people have. That's one of the reasons for why those – but they could also be vindictive. Yeah, that's – and it's, um, you know, one of the problems uh, with the system is, especially now with the power imbalance between unemployed and and job agent being – so great is, um, you know, occasionally you might have a very good, good natured, um, you know, job reasonable. agent, but then reasonable job agent who maybe has a, you know, maybe has a, you know, a social work background or some sort of, um, some sort of understanding of the struggle you go through. But the problem is the system is contingent on, um, you know, the discretion of individuals, um, you know, within the system uh, more and more. Um, you know, the rights um, uh, that, you know, should enshrine and protect Social Security recipients are being taken away. So really... It's like refugees. They're being yeah, treated like criminals. Yeah, absolutely. It's... Uh, um, uh, that's, you know, and that really informs um, all the policy, really, in, in a sense. It's sort of, you know, taking a, a step back from it. It is this underlying assumption that... Um, you know, you are prone to, um, you know, lazy, unmotivated, um, you know, vaguely criminal, maybe behavior. So you need this kind of, you know, reforming of your character oh, through no, this so kind the, of system. That, yeah, you know, and the two different the types of people, the person who's pen pushing and the person who's, uh, you know, a supplicant to and trying to, it's changing the relationship between citizens. Yeah, absolutely. And, and changing the you know, this, this, this whole idea of, um, you know, however you want to call it, a contract between citizen and, and government and citizen and um, society, this, this whole idea, um, you know, that every Australian citizen by rights has the right to, you know, access dignified social security, that's really being um, and has been eroded over, uh, over a number of years for very clear, um, obvious reasons. It's quite startling if you have a look at some of the government's budgeting around um, this new demerit point system. It's right forward, there. They've, forward they've, budgeting. Yes, forward budgeting. They've modelled it all out. They expect by the end of this year um, that 80,000 people are going to be chucked off Newstart bec- directly because of this new Does that mean we're going to get 80,000 more homeless people well, on we, the streets? We have potentially, we have no idea where those 80,000 people are going to go. The kind of... You know, government and rhetoric so, about chest beating, about job creation. They think they want to assume they're all ending up in work. But I we suppose know that's that, why there's this increase in police. <laughs> the increase in, and 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 that's a you know uh, an important point you raise because you know we do a lot of work around um, other punitive unemployment programs like cashless welfare card, for instance, and that's seeing a direct correlation between that punitive program being rolled out and criminal activity. Uh, rising, so yes, and remember sh- the government. This is government policy, and that it's their fault. Yeah, they. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just their it's, fault. It's absolutely that you know. Um, you know, we can throw you know, uh, especially when individual cases come through our hotline of 
you know, yeah, yeah, job agency you, you read the, you know, bad behaviour. But yeah, the, you read the information. It says it all sounds terribly reasonable. Right. You know, it's all terribly reasonable for why they should be doing this. You know, it's they only people are only being given de- demerit points because they didn't do what they were told. Right. You know, they didn't. They were. You know, they didn't. They were lazy, or they didn't go to that uh, work for the doll site that might be unsafe. Yes, and that's really worth you know remembering that Australia, you know, we're really ahead of the curb. Uh, we've got one of the toughest job seeker compliance regimes um, in the OECD. You mentioned um, work for the doll, <laughs> whereby um, you know we literally outsource unemployed people to. Um, you know, what are turning out to be very unregulated, unsafe uh, sites to perform uh, free labor. Some job seekers have to rack up 50 hours a fortnight in uh, compliance activities like work for the dole, attending appointments, um, that kind of thing. And in fact, if there were 50 hours of work, why aren't they being paid proper wages? Well, exactly. And that, you know, um, you know, as as you know, that has huge ramifications for the rest of the economy. When and so other many workers, as, other workers, so many insecure, um, underemployed workers. If you know, if the government can put a work for the dollar or a, or a path intern or another one of its sort of free labour. Uh, unemployed people on these sites, you know, that means someone else doesn't get a fair job. I mean, you probably know, Jeremy, that it really, really aggravates me, this whole thing. But, you know, and obviously aggravates you and the people from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. And the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is a collective that actually is fighting back. Uh, And I noticed that uh, actually when uh, Michaela Cash was, uh, you know, strutting about the uh, parliament, Mm -hmm. she actually named you, your your organisation, you must be effective. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, I feel like we're starting to annoy uh, the right good. people, which is good. Um, uh, you know, Michaela Cash is no fan of ours, which we, you know, treat rightfully as a as a badge of honour. Um, she called us uh, last year. I think we came to a lot of people's attention because we got um, publicly bashed by her and I think Bob Catter for being, quote, a sophisticated bludgers club, um, and I sort of... Um, oh, they must have paid a lot of money to get that out of the public <laughs> relations firm. Yeah, and uh, I got dragged onto um, some media uh, to, you know, and face this bombardment of questions along the lines of, so why aren't you, um, why are you helping unemployed people escape their responsibilities? Why aren't you out there finding them work? And it was, you know, <laughs> because sort of citizens, had to go... citizens who were unemployed... Uh, have no rights. That's what they're really saying. Well, and and the funny thing about, you know, about that kind of question is, you know, especially from journalists, is why aren't you posing that question to a $10 billion job services industry? Why are you, um, you know, all we are is a collective of unemployed people, underemployed people banding together, um, trying to help each other, inform each other, stand up for each other's rights, obviously, you know, certain sectors of government and corporate media uh, don't like that very much. But yeah, it is always, uh, I think, revealing uh, to see the kind of attitudes you rub, rub up against from Michaela Cash and um, certain folks in media. Because literally all we do at the Unemployed Workers Union um, is try to hold an industry to account. We're essentially doing what 
a responsible government should be doing but is really failing to. Yeah, well, to, let's get back to the government. It's obviously the government's business model because they've been working very hard on crippling uh, uh, unemployed people's uh, rights. Yep. Uh, it's been pointed out that there aren't enough jobs anyway. Mm-hmm. People are The level of un- underemployment in Australia is very high. Uh, and also they're laying waste to the industrial landscape in Australia. So it's quite clear that uh, uh, tax cuts for the big end of town and crippling uh, people in uh, who are struggling to make ends meet is the government's business plan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's where the demerit point is. It's now become a fascistic uh, business plan. Yeah, and, you know, and... Um you know the demerit system is a really good i think insight into a critique of um you know this you know, the government's you know whole sort of um, economic thinking and and strategy because it's literally um this industry uh, as it stands um is 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 built on profiting of of over the lives of um unemployed uh poor australians this is an industry um that's being shown again and again not to um, be able to land a majority of its clients into um, uh, into work. It's an industry that is rewarded um, for placing people, unemployed people, in work for the door programs, in training, um, in training programs. And what the demerit point system really is about, in that sense, is giving job agents more power to sort of coerce unemployed people into activities that basically generate. Uh, them more profits because they get, you know, little bonuses for every placement they're able to put an unemployed person. It's a, you know, success placement based uh, profit profit model. So, really looking at, um, you know, this industry, you can sort of, um, you know, get a clear sense of, you know, what this government's economic rationality in scare quotes uh, really is. Uh, from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, uh, is there an idea of what would be a better system? Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, going, going back to, um, a social security, uh, system that isn't, you know, that firstly isn't based on, um, you know, punitive measures and intense client compliance demands to, to justify, um, your receipt, uh, of income. There should be a sense of unconditional, uh, income, you know, more of your, uh, UBI, universal basic income, uh, model. Uh, I suppose, you know, we've been calling for, as well as, you know, other groups like the Anti-Poverty Network for a raise uh, to Newstart uh, to get that um, you know, above very, the poverty it, line. line yeah. um, so, um, you know, and we want the, you know, where, you know, we also um, in our materials call for um, the renationalization of um, of employment services. You know, I think I think this year is 15 years since the government started privatizing and and outsourcing um, um, employment services. So we think, you know, first of all, it's a government responsibility to ensure every Australian who wants to work um, is able to, and as we know, they're failing to do that uh, dismally. Um, but those who are on, um, who rely on on social security, the right of any um, Australian. Uh, citizen, we think they should have the unconditional um, right to, um, you know, uh, 
dignified uh, dignified social security and secure income. It's very it's very simple opposition. I think not so radical and and bizarre as people like Michaelia Cash might claim to. This is something we um, were really good at uh, in this country um, in the twentieth century. Once upon a time. Thanks for coming in, Jeremy. No worries. Thanks for having me. Yarra City Council presents the 6th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2018, celebrating live music in Yarra, featuring the likes of Black Scott in Go Gaga at the Gasometer, Penny Eichinger at the Yarra Hotel, Queer in the Pitch with Mama Alto at Hairs and Hyenas, a hip-hop music showcase, Girls to the Front at the Laundry, and much, much more. Ten days in July, with over 30 events at venues across the city of Yarra. For more information and tickets, go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. The Sounds of Winter, a 3CR supporter. The Smith Street Dreaming Festival is coming soon. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals. This year... We're featuring Dave Arden and Band, Alice Skye, Benny Walker, Birds, the Jury Jury Dance Group and Indigenous Hip Hop Projects with MC Layla Guruwiri from the Mangrook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming, corner of Smith Street and Stanley Street's Collingwood. Saturday, July the 22nd, 1pm to 5 o'clock. Smith Street Dreaming, one street, many mobs, one community. Smith Street Dreaming is a drug and alcohol free event and a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. You are. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, on the line we've got Roger Wilson from uh, Figo for Pensioners. G'day, Roger. How are you? Hello to your listeners. Yeah, thanks for getting up on a Saturday morning and no, talking no, about yarn with us. That's all right. I'm about to go to the airport. So. Yeah, well, we'll hurry it up. Uh, one of the things that uh, has been on the agenda and probably is on your agenda is the uh, uh, t- the government's talk about increasing the pension age to uh, old age pension age to seventy years. Have your members been talking about that? We've uh, been talking about that ever since uh, the national or the federal government uh, introduced this matter, uh, what I think four or five years ago, the uh, question of increasing the age pension was mooted in Parliament and uh, from uh, that time on, fair go for pensioners is uh, in fact calling for the government, particularly if Labor is elected at the next election, that they bring the pension age back to age 65, the age 65 provisions which have existed for many, many years. Uh, well, for several generations, so we're strongly opposed to that. I think there are are very good logical reasons, for instance, to increase the pension makes an assumption that uh, 
you know, at age 65 and up to uh, 70, uh, that you're still as fit as when you were 25. It's an absurd proposition. And uh, Well, fact, also, also, Roger, uh, there is a... Um Unemployment and underemployment. Indeed, indeed, and and such a move would exacerbate that. And it's a well-known fact that if you're about 45 or over and you're made redundant from your workplace because of either uh, technological change or offshoring the industry to some uh, semi-slave labour market overseas... Uh, the fact is that these people, because they're unable to get a job because of ageism, uh, they'll be on new start until uh, they reach the pension age. I mean, it's just an absurd proposition, whichever way you look at it. And we're strongly opposed to it, and we certainly urge the Labor Party, the Greens, independents and so on, and indeed even members of the governing parties to uh, uh, reconsider this matter. And I believe, uh, uh, as a, a long-time activist, that the level of civilization in a country can be measured by how older people are treated, what sort of education is provided, what sort of health system you have and so on. Without those measures, we have a small group of very rich people and lots and lots of uh, people who suffer social injustice. Well, Roger, it's interesting that you brought up uh, the idea that members of the Liberal National Party might actually not support these draconian uh, measures that uh, the uh, ruling party is pushing forward. Uh, Because uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because uh, a lot of the uh, policies that this... uh, ruling elite are pushing forward are coming from the API or the uh, the Inst- Institute of Public Affairs, yeah, IPA, yes, sorry. Yes. I the, get my... mo- the most reactionary public think tank. Yes, and uh, it's quite clear that uh, it, it's not about uh, informed decision-making. It's actually a, uh, a quick-stepping uh, public relations for yes. right-wing ideology. But... Uh, uh, one of the things that uh, for a number of years they've been pushing is that uh, uh, old age pension, and we'll concentrate on the old age pension because yes. it's particular, is that uh, it's, it's, people shouldn't be feeling that they're entitled to it and that there isn't a great big piggy bank that uh, people can uh, take funds from in order to finance uh, the pension. pension. When in actual fact, uh, everything's general revenue. But actually, many people are actually. Uh, it was there was a time in history where the Australian public were actually asked in a referendum-style arrangement yeah. if 
certain taxes, percentage of tax, should be put forward for to cover the old age pension. That's and correct, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. And in fact, uh, even though the pension was first initiated, I think by Andrew Fisher when he was uh, Prime Minister shortly after uh, a federation, after the Second World War, the Chifley government made made these announcements and 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 legislatively put forward put aside future funds to provide people with uh, pensions and to uh, cover the developing improving social security system at that time so uh, there's no doubt about it that and that's all recorded in Hansard. Now, the thing about it is that the Australian public believes that's yes. what they're being taxed for. Now, the IPA and the ruling elite want to change the rules and make out like a pugilist, like a boxer who's b- boxing yes. people in the face, that yes. you, you will agree with us that we can take your money uh, uh, because uh, we just want to change the rules. Well, uh, well, all I can say is that we're strongly opposed to that and I might make this observation that it's been my belief for some years now that the think tanks of the right and the extreme right, it's my belief that they see the advances that... Uh, the working class and uh, society more generally made between the latter part of the 19th century and up to about 1980 that somehow they're an aberration of how capitalism should work and they're hell-bent in the interest of increasing the profits of those who support them, that is, the big business, uh, doing their job to maximise their profits regardless of the outcome and that needs to be, if that's to be pushed back, it requires increasing action by the public and that's the only thing that will win the day. Thanks, that's a good point to finish now, on. I, I'd just like to uh, quickly make this point. Fair go for pensioners... Uh, with the assistance of the Trades Hall, has just launched through megaphone.org.au a petition about our national claims, including the claim for a significant increase in the pension. So if people go to megaphone.org.au, they can sign the petition and I'm sure there'd be many of your listeners that would be interested in doing that. And we hope to present this petition to the federal parliament before the election takes place. So uh, all success to uh, the megaphone petition. Thanks very much. And thank you. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Hey y'all, hey y'all, hey y'all.
that at one, at one stage in the early, in, in, in even earlier, before the Industrial Revolution and during the Industrial Revolution, it was much clearer, at least in the workplace sphere, uh, that there was direct exploitation of workers. <coughs> and the expression master and servant, as the law was called, uh, actually came from the idea that there are some people who are servile. They're like serfs. And they have no, and they have no, and they had some benefits, by the way. There used to be provisions that they couldn't be sacked uh, without giving adequate notice, ranging from six months to a year. And they were basically, in the, and that came from the life of agricultural workers uh, earlier on, which was translated into the industrial setting. One of the, one, what happened basically to the master servant law is that we switched from a series of imposed conditions for master and servant. They were imposed under things called the Apprenticeship Act, the Elizabethan statutes from the 1600s onwards, uh, gradually disappeared and they were replaced by a contract of employment, that is by a bargaining system between equal individuals, so it was thought, which led and they imported some of those master and servant of feudal ideas into the contract of employment. That's why we have a duty to obey. That's why we have it. It's a feudal idea, not, not a modern idea at all. And so that was important into our law. Indeed, when I first, when I took law uh, at Melbourne University, it was the first time, I was in the first class that ever taught industrial law in this, in this country. And that was, uh, and before that, it had been called domestic relations. It was the law of butlers, relating to butlers and wives, who were servants. And then we moved to industrial law because we had, of course, an industry, a large industrial scale, and we had the contract employment. Australian workers cut through this dilemma that you raised about it being an individual relationship where one was clearly oppressing the other. Uh, cut through that eventually after a bitter, bitter defeat in the 1880s, 1890s, they came up with a conciliation and arbitration system, which was a deal where they would take wages out of competition. Where, 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 in fact, eventually, it didn't happen instantly, but wages were actually taken out of competition. You remember how it worked. A union would serve a log of claims on all the employees in that industry, and whether they were unionized or not, the same conditions would apply. Very, very revolutionary, by the way. Started in New Zealand, of course. And the, the, so the idea was to get away from the master and servant, and they cut through to that. In that setting, what became most important in Australian law was in fact the union. The union became the center of all labor relations uh, mechani uh, adjustment mechanisms. And the, it, you couldn't do anything without the union instituting the claim. Unions therefore got legitimacy at the policy bargaining tables, which they haven't had for a number of years now, obviously. And, had, and so they were the legitimate outlet so the master and servant idea disappeared. The last master and servant law in Australia did not disappear until 1931 in, in, in New South Wales. In the 60s and 70s, employers fought back. And they started fighting back by reaching out for the old, what we call, the lawyers call, old common law actions. And they went back to the old common law actions because they were based on master and servant law. And they gradually convinced us, as a society, that that should count, that that should be the dominant theme, and that unions should in fact be marginalized as privileged small groups representing small groups of wage workers in competition with one another. <coughs> and then we stopped industry-wide bargaining, 
let alone nationwide badly. We stopped industry-wide badly. And as we stopped industry-wide badly, we got down, of course, to as close as you can get to individual badly, which is that master and servant uh, period that you think of. So we're returning to that. There is a great attempt to return us to that. That's also happened in the US and is happening in the UK. And uh, the, uh, so there, there is a long sweep of this going on. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when congratulations to, and I'm sure she'll appreciate it from the week that was, to Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo, Theresa May Not Last, for her highly successful weekend retreat to sort out Brexit policy, her Brexit tactic, which worked a treat. Half the cabinet has Brexited, making us realise the B in Brexit was for Boris, who made for the exit, understanding it's a revolving door, and the other side to which he's staying very, very close is marked entrance, confirming Boris's Brexit is Boris's Brexit tactic, while her Minister for Brexit policy Brexited on the unreasonable grounds that he doesn't support her Brexit policy and that his Brexit policy, as he stands next to Boris on the entrance side of exit, so, not sure we've seen the last of them, which we can't say for Theresa, whose expertise in political tactics in Machiavellianism is impeccable, calling an election ages early so she could massively increase her numbers and succeeding in losing most of them, and then holding her weekend retreat to reach Brexit consensus and succeeding in losing the relevant cabinet members. And Boris and Davids, he's the now ex-Brexit secretary waiting outside the revolving door with Boris. Boris and Davids' principal support for the Brexit people voted for is that as part of Europe, Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country gets overrun by Europeans. Not desirable Europeans like Boris and David and Nigel Lafarce, but undesirable Europeans flooding across the Channel. Although Boris and David and Nigel agree it would serve Europe right if they could but send Theresa across the Channel the other way. Well, they know that flooding an homogenous, classless society like Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country with undesirables can lead to the destruction of customs and cultures and language developed over eons. Of course it does. Look at the impact on the civilizations, the peoples all over the world we've invaded. We'll return to that theme, listener, but still in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, just when Therese was looking for all the help she could get, along came Donald, the self-acclaimed consistent genius. And on regarding himself as a genius, he is consistent. Who chastised her for not taking his genius advice on Brexit and commenting diplomatically he thought his friend Boris would make a great big supremo. Great, great. And Donald attacked his NATO-trained killer cohorts for not spending nearly enough on US of the UN of the US of the world trained killer merchants of death merchandise. Uh, and who's the threat to Europe and the US of we must use your merchandise to train kill, they asked. All of you, all of you, especially Germany. Donald then said he had got along swimmingly with all of them, especially his close friend Angela, and said he had got along swimmingly with his very close friend Therese, 
and last seen after spending the weekend at one of his golf resorts in Scotland, Donald, after modestly telling us Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country just loved him, was heading off to have a chat to Her Most Gracious Majesty. <laughs> Won't that be a meeting of the minds? <laughs> On that... Look, sometimes we can be a little critical of Her Most Gracious Majesty and her family of hangers-on as they keep producing new little hungry mouths for the British taxpayer to feed. Hurtful comments like, sponges, the biggest doll budgers in the world. All true, but this week let's spare a thought, because obviously they need every euro, every penny of that taxpayer's hard-earned Important news item in the Lord Rupert of Wapping sin this week, the latest hungry mouth dependent on that hard earned was about to be christened. Apart from the exciting news that it would be the first time the new kid and his parents and two doll-bludging siblings would be seen together as a family, for that we could hardly wait, disturbing news. The kid would wear the, quote, same frilly cream gown his siblings wore for their introduction to Jesus a replica of one worn by Her Most Gracious Majesty Queen Victoria, who must have been named after this state, Victoria's daughter in 1841. Oh, couldn't have been named after, but spare a thought that they can't afford a new gown for the little kid, have to keep recycling. And then it got worse. At the little post-christening cup of tea, they served bits of the kid's parents' seven-year-old wedding cake. God, even I could afford a fresh cake. It's awful for them, but as we know, here in True Blue Aussie, it's pretty tough trying to survive on the doll. As a by-the-by, notice one of the royal incubators married to the princes we all love failed to appear somewhere, and they said she was on sick leave. Uh, from what? On that, Boris and David and Nigel's concern about loss of culture and language and the name Victoria brings me to a complaint. How do we? the real people of this great country, get conned into allowing the terra nullius non-people to carry on as if they exist, this NADOC week nonsense, showing they can't even count, because here in Victoria it's two weeks, NADOC weeks, complaining about the usual litany of so-called injustices. And for a long time I fell for it, until that respected thinker, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, usual suspect columnist, bolted through the head, exposed the lie. Not one child, not one, was ever stolen from her or his parents. Why, like US of the UN of the US of the world, Big Supremo Donald, and our very own Minister for Concentration Camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, and keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer, we go out of our way to keep families together. The non-people pledge on massive public welfare, the usual suspect columnist alerts us. Every cent wasted, bludging just like her most gracious and her gang of ne'er-do-wells. Well, bolt through the head didn't say that bit. And as for the claims, claims that incarceration rates are outrageously disproportionate, if you do the crime, you do the time. And since they came here, post-1788, when Trubley was, he was terra nullius, since they invaded us, we have introduced them to the overwhelming benefits of British capitalist law, which they so abused by making a beeline for the nearest prison. And as for these claims in the past week or so that 100% of northern truly was a youth inmates are terra nullius non-people, reflects a failure by we the real people 
What nonsense! It simply proves that 100% of Terra Nullius non-people youth have no respect for the law, the law that is there to protect them, despite all that we do for them. And that 100% of decent law-abiding white youth in northern Trublawazi have that respect. Not one criminal white youth in the whole territory. And I have to say, and I'm sorry, but shame on this station for running programs all week attempting to make out that all these terra nullius non-people doing the time for heinous crimes like, like not having the wherewithal to pay fines are real human beings. Shame. And I'm sure Lord Rupert's usual suspect, Cullen Russ, would be shocked at the thieve extolling all these terra nullius non-people women. A further attempt to divide society. Again, shame. On the dramatic Thai rescue, I feel the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin captured how we all felt, captured the guts of the story, and spoke for all of us with its P1 headline, World's Prayers Answered. Forget the heroes and organisers who pulled it off. They had nothing to do with it other than being God's little helpers, hands, the dear baby Jesus tools. It was prayer. The whopping sin didn't mention which of the sundry gods or non-gods like Buddha, although that probably rules Buddha out, which of the sundry gods the world implored answered the world's prayers. Although Lord Rupert, himself an exemplar of Christianity, and actually when we think about it, he probably is, doubtless assumed we'd know it was our God and none of that false lot. Given it was prayer and not the local and international heroes, we can assume, based on Lord Rupert's logic, that prayers didn't work for the poor bloke who died during the rescue attempt, or his death was God's will. Or maybe in his case they were praying to the wrong God. God aside, I don't think we need, you, you or me need, to point out what a remarkable and wonderful achievement it was. And as an aside, a friend who visits that area regularly tells me one of the boys was from Myanmar and those families cannot receive citizenship and associated benefits but are allowed a work permit. Finally, as Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, which is featuring heavily today, home country kept pointing the finger at evil Russia over so-called nerve agent attacks. Evil Russia thought it could ride out the storm until late Monday when our very own minister for going overseas all the time and, and, and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash up the workers, held a press conference threatening evil Russia with all sorts of crippling punishments if it doesn't do the decent thing and plead guilty, whether it is guilty or not. Won't that have them shaking in their boots in Red Square after they whip out their atlases? Ivan, what does it start with again? Finally, finally, one of our great caring corporations, Aware Class Warfare is a Chimera, that highly respected financial advisor, AMP on the customers, whose sensible business practice is to provide absolutely nothing for its ridiculously outrageous fees, is threatening financial planners contracted to it with losing their licenses, presumably because they were giving bad advice, something that would shock AMP to its roots. It knows obviously you can't give bad advice if you don't give any at all. Just concentrate on getting their money. After all, those who have it tell us it makes the world go round. Well, until it's fried to extinction. Good morning. 
Yarra City Council presents the 6th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2018, celebrating live music in Yarra, featuring the likes of Black Scott in Go Gaga at the Gasometer, Penny Eichinger at the Yarra Hotel, Queering the Pitch with Mama Alto at Hairs and Hyenas, a hip-hop music showcase, Girls to the Front at the Laundry, and much, much more. Ten days in July, with over 30 events at venues across the city of Yarra. For more information and tickets, go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. The Sounds of Winter, a 3CR supporter. Do you want to learn new skills and open new career opportunities? AIMS Australia is a leading education provider offering government-funded courses in general English, aged care and work skills. Courses start in July, so call 13 26 37 now to sign up today or go to ames.net.au for more information. AIMS Australia is a registered training organisation, TOID 0590. AIMS Australia is a 3CR supporter. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. You might be interested to know that uh, just before this is the week that was, we had Harry Glasbeck, who is a, uh, well, he's actually a professor, but he he was an industrial lawyer, and he was giving us a background to uh, the situation at the moment uh, from the master and servant and how we've come full circle. And uh, he, he was giving a presentation around, for a launch of his book, uh, Capitalism, A Crime Scene. You might be interested in going and uh, finding out more about that book. But right at this moment, we're going to find out about those dastardly students and others who on uh, Wednesday were out and about uh, raising the awareness uh, of militarism on our uh, university campuses about the environment and about refugee policy. And on the line we've got Will Ross from uh, Disarm Unis and Lockout Lockheed. G'day, Will, how are you? Good morning, Annie. How are you doing? I'm good. <laughs> That's good. Uh, and uh, tell us, it was a very, really interesting action because it was actually a kind of decentralised action, wasn't it, right across the uh, across Melbourne? That's exactly right, yeah. So I was lucky enough to be one of the dastardly students involved in the action. And um, we, had a, we had four different actions going on across Melbourne, all about interlinked issues of militarism, refugees, land rights and sovereignty and the environment. And, uh, yeah, you're right. It was a very decentralised action, which led to some confusion from the authorities we were dealing with. But uh, I think it worked the best it could have worked. Yeah, it's very clever, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was interesting because uh, I, I, I we'll get to the reason why I've got you on because I want to talk particularly about uh, demilitarising de- our universities. Mm. But uh, I watched uh, the presentation on our uh 
I have to say, arch enemy Channel 7 News, who is, oh, yeah, yeah <laughs> which if yeah. nobody's noticed, is actively supporting uh, fascist organisations. But it was fascinating because uh, they talked about, uh, they were outside the Border Force, uh, uh, that's not what it's, uh, officers of Border Force, and, mm. um, and this was, uh, there was a very, uh, clear message by the people who are out the front there with a big banner saying that uh, border force are murderers equals murder. <laughs> and uh, it, it was really interesting because on the Channel 7 News, they had that and then when they tidied up the uh, link and had an extra report about how border force has got some new recruits for these really cuddly dogs, you know, puppies. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a really fascinating <laughs> thing to watch. Yeah, well, yeah, it's the last thing we wanted them to bring the dogs into it, but it does work, apparently. <laughs> but the point is that uh, it's quite clear that uh, this kind of demonstrating uh, being with very clear messages is working. Mm, and that's the thing. It's hard to avoid when, when you've got so many people out there making a statement that really can't be twisted any other way. Tell us about uh, the action on at Melbourne University and why... Uh, it, they, Melbourne University in particular has been targeted. Sure. So um, our, our action was part of the, the day of action, but it was also linked with the group, as you said, that I'm a part of, which is Lockout Lockheed, which is a local group on the University of Melbourne campus. Uh, we found out about a year ago about a secretive deal between the university and Lockheed Martin to build a $13 million lab um, and to share a contract for research and development. And basically that's all we've heard about it over the last year. Uh, the university has been very secretive and not transparent at all. And despite numerous Freedom of Information Act submissions that we've put through and requests to open a dialogue, we've heard absolutely zip. So this action was about saying, hey, actually, as students, we need to know what's going on with our university. We need to know what's going on with the money we're paying for our studies. And we want to know where our students are being sent for their postgraduate jobs and internships. So, Lockheed, explain to people. I'm not that our listeners probably are unaware, but do, do you want to talk about Lockheed? Absolutely, yeah. So, Lockheed Martin are the world's largest weapons manufacturer. They're the key contractor for the US military, which are also, by the way, the largest, um, one of the largest carbon emitters in the world. But at the same time, they're a contractor for the Israeli military, for the occupation in Gaza. They're a contractor for Saudi Arabia who are using their weapons in genocide in Yemen and a bunch of other countries performing illegal acts across the world. So it's not merely a case of just a military contractor that the university has entered in, but one that is engaged in their weapons being used in war crimes in multiple places right now. Yeah, it's pretty disquieting to think that uh, in those leafy, quiet climbs of Melbourne University that uh, uh, they're harbouring such an evil influence. Exactly, yeah. Under the sandstones, there are a few secrets, it seems. Yeah, exactly. So uh, how did your action go at Melbourne University? Did you get people, were people questioning what was going on? I mean, absolutely. We got a range of responses from the people that came and saw the action. Um, I would definitely label the action a success. I mean, we were there, six of us locked on with concrete barrels in front of the, the doors to the administration building, and uh, we stayed there for 14 hours on Wednesday. And basically what that achieved was we had all the staff for the admin unable to get to their jobs, unable to go to work that day, and sending a message to say business as normal cannot continue 
while these contracts are underway and we know nothing about what's going on. Well, but, uh, yeah, did uh, other students uh, ask you about what you were doing? We did. We had a lot of students come up and kind of were curious, what does this mean? Who is Lockout Lockheed? Who are Lockheed Martin? Because there's been so little message out there. But at the same time, we've had staff come up and ask more. And we've had a lot of staff actually come up and kind of quietly pat us on the shoulder and say, thank you for doing this. This is a great job. Mm, it's really interesting, isn't it? Now, um, I know that uh, there is uh, 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 right across the country in different universities, uh, uh, people are developing uh, little orga- and bigger organisations to uh, announce this message that our universities are no longer uh, are, are most of the most of the funding uh, besides the exorbitant uh, fees mm. are actually being used for. Uh, are being collected by these large international companies and that universities uh, are actually under threat in terms of their original purpose. That's exactly right. And, um, yeah, Annie, one of the key messages of our campaign has been that the university should be a place for the public good and not a public threat. So we see this in a large part as part of a bigger picture of not just the militarisation of universities but the corporatisation of universities across Australia. We're starting to see the institutions be more answerable to, you know, their profits and their investors than they are actually to their students. And that's just the wrong direction completely. Which is interesting because, in fact, they were established on uh, from the public purse. Exactly right. Yeah, there's a huge history. And they have these universities, like Melbourne University, have these huge histories of standing up to militarism during the Vietnam War, for example. But today... We've just seen this complete silence from the administration, this unwillingness to work with students at all. Mm, it's very interesting because uh, once it becomes a private enterprise and uh, the economy of Australia has increased, uh, I mean, education is one of the major uh, export industries that Australia is now relying upon. Uh, it, it's a really important issue that uh, Australian citizens should involve themselves in, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's interesting you mentioned the element there of education as kind of one of our chief imports or exports, Uh, because as a result of that, almost paradoxically, the uni is more corporatised, but it also relies on its corporate image much more heavily. So these protests where we're out there and public and visible and getting it on social media, talking at radio shows or TV interviews, that goes straight to the heart of the university. So we've got much more power in that respect. Has there been any uh, sense of uncomfortableness being uh, evinced by the uh, management at uh, Melbourne Uni because of this? Uh, Sorry, could you repeat that? Has anything happened? Have uh, the uh, management of uh, Melbourne Uni expressed anything about, have they put out a press release? Have they done anything to try, you know, like as I was mentioning, Mm. Channel 7 News and the uh, Border Force, the government, obviously have uh, a um, tight relationship and so their media people immediately got a story out with cuddly dogs. Has the, yeah, Melbourne, U- <laughs> has the Melbourne University people put anything out to try and... Uh, or are they doing a stiff upper lip and uh, j- just assuming it will go away? Yeah, I think we've seen... We haven't seen that kind of same damage control that Border Force put out with the cuddly dogs campaign. Um, at the university. But what we have actually had is the university turn around and say, well, we're, we're open to having a dialogue now. So 
Um, oh, at the really? end of our 14 hours of being locked on, we were offered a meeting next week with the uh, provost and the acting vice chancellor of the university. Oh, that's fascinating. And so yeah, that, so that is a bit of movement. That's exactly right. We're calling it a tentative success at this point because none of our demands have actually been met. But on the other hand, we've got this opportunity now to open up a dialogue, to hear more about these contracts, and then to go forward from there, potentially talking to the university, which is a fantastic thing. What, what are your demands? So our two chief demands are that the university seeks all military contracts with military contractors. But at the same time, our second demand and our key focus for the campaign on Wednesday was that we need transparency from the union. We still don't know what's in these contracts. So we want to see these contracts, we want to see the documents, we want to be able to discuss them. Do you have any idea what they're actually researching? Um, very, very little. Basically, digital technology and development, but we don't know anything beyond that. Oh, fascinating. Uh, so how many people are in your group? Oh, you know, is it a large group or a small group? Yeah, so it's been, over the last year, kind of a small group but steadily growing. And I think we've seen that with Wednesday. The group's just, the membership has really, really exploded in the last few days. So we've, we, we started off as a small group of kind of concerned university citizens, but with the public image of the campaign growing, we had six volunteers locked on yesterday and maybe another 30 or 40 people as support, as media staff, and helping us out. Mm, okay. So uh, how do, if people are listening and want to be involved, uh, and, and, and are you uh, connected to any of the uh, uh, ones on other campuses? Because we spoke to some people from Melbourne, uh, Queensland University about a similar issue. Uh, are there others? Is it a national sort of connect, uh, or individual campuses? Uh, it's definitely part of a, a broader national movement, that's for sure. So one of the key points of the protests on Wednesday and the actions we took was that it coincided with the SOS conference, which is part of the Australian Student Environments Network. So we had students from all across the country and student activists from all across the country in Melbourne over the last week, and they were participating in these actions as well as local students. So we're definitely emphasising this is part of a broader campaign, the hashtag Disarm Unis campaign, which is all across Australia right now. And what we're doing is basically calling out for students across the country to take direct action and disarm universities. And the uh, method of um, going to different locations in Melbourne, is that a response to the increased militarisation of the police forces that we're observing? In part, it was strategic, and we've definitely, it, we've definitely seen it become harder to stage these kind of actions over the last few years. But uh, it was also having these multiple locations was about showing that these issues are not separate. You know, when we talk about militarism at the uni, we're talking about the US military being one of the largest carbon emitters in the world. We're talking about the university itself being on stolen land that was never ceded. So these issues can't be separated, and that was our key message on Wednesday. Thanks for talking to us, and it'd be great to find out of what happens at this meeting, so I'll, I'll keep in touch. All right, let's keep in touch. We'll definitely be posting updates on our Facebook page, Lockout Lockheed. Thanks, mate. All right, thanks, Annie.
Australians. Pay attention. It's most from Manus, who's a sock in the hell since four years, without any reason. Listen to me for a minute, por favor. Just want you to be aware about what all the rats have done to me. Liberal label lying to you. I'm not terrorist, I'm not perilous. But they have put my youth in the horrible cage for cheating, money, running their bloody policy. So want you to get your shit together and sort out this mess. Or you always be known as Australia's next test. Help us keep our sanity, remember our humanity. Abandon me in limbo No worries when I hear sorry from you But you know your silence brings them strength and happiness Your government treats us like animals While the UN say we're not criminals Peter Dutton, Malcolm Turnbull Hang your head in shame It's a crime you have committed in Australia's good day So want you to get your shit together And sort out this mess Or you always be known as Australia's excess Our sanity, remember our humanity. I am you are, we are all the same. Help us keep our sanity, remember our humanity. I am you are, we are all the same. Help us keep our sanity, remember our humanity. on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've come to the end of the program today. Uh, Today we uh, had a look at uh, what the NUW, the National Union of Workers and other unions are doing in the uh, space around energy and a uh, energy cooperative, which they're beginning, they're starting off their uh, method uh, of uh, working out a plan to be able to uh, uh, distribute energy at a in a way and at a cost that working people in Australia can actually uh, um, afford. Uh, take it uh, taking power outside out of the hands of the corporates, which is a great plan. Uh, we uh, moved on to uh, uh, find out. Um, more about um, the demerit points and the increasing uh, powers that have been given to private companies uh, 
the government is uh, divesting its responsibility and acting in what I consider to be an unethical manner while it uh, privatises the uh, Centrelink uh, social security system in this country and that uh, people should be very afraid, very afraid. Uh, and uh, moving on, we talked to uh, Fear Go for Pensioners, uh, Roger Wilson, uh, about the uh, increasing... or of the uh, old age pension age and uh, also moving on to uh, the the demonstrations that uh, went on on Wednesday across the city around uh, uh, the militarisation of our universities, the uh, ongoing assault against uh, the environment and refugees and how these issues and uh, sovereignty, uh, there were four, demonstrations across uh, the Melbourne city uh, against policies that are actually not in the interests of the country or its citizens. Uh, We're going to go out uh, with um, a song which I just love. It's called Simply Irresistible. It's by a band called Bron. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. But uh, we're, f- uh, we're finishing a little bit early. I uh, haven't... Uh, I realise that there's a couple of uh, demonstrations I should tell you about, I think. And I was mentioning that uh, Channel 7 News is showing itself to... And Channel 7 in general is showing itself its true colours with its ongoing support of the uh, True Blue crew, as well as uh, the... Um, uh, in. Uh, creating reports around the notion of there being black gangs that uh, obviously somehow or other tied to the Liberal Party, State Liberal Party's desire to make law and order the major issue in this state leading up to the next election, when of course there's so many other issues, i.e. the sell-off of public housing, the incredible level of amount of money being put into roads when uh, public uh, transport is in dire need. Uh, so many other things uh, when the uh, law and order issue uh, crime has gone down. Statistics are showing it. And interestingly enough, going on the train from Faulkner into the city, noticing that uh, they couldn't afford to keep uh, those um, train stops open with a member of staff selling tickets, etc., and helping people out. But they can afford to have two... Uh, very visible uh, armed uh, security uh, people dressed up very similar to police but are called public uh, PSOs. They're, they're able to be on every station coming in from Faulkner. Uh, two of them, uh, they could afford that. But anyway, Channel 7 News, uh, uh, 160 Ar- Harbour Esplanade in uh, Dockland, on the 20th of July at four o'clock, there's going to actually be a demonstration. Uh, enough is enough. Channel Seven protest, uh, which you can go along to. Four o'clock, 20th of July. You can share your uh, annoyance with the with other people. Anyway, as I said, simply irresistible. Talk to you next week. Can it be permissible? She'll compromise my principles. Yeah.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.